uh, we find then Rome on the top uh, left corner as well. Carthage uh, is there in Africa, uh, the middle left, and then uh, many cities there in Asia Minor, around uh, Turkey. Uh, we have uh, we have Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, churches there that we recognize uh, from the book of Revelation as well. So that gives you an idea where they are in the ancient world, on the world map, uh, this little section. And so I trust that's helpful in understanding where some of these uh, places are. When we talk about Alexandria, well, there we are. It's in Egypt. That's exactly where it was in comparison to Jerusalem, Rome, etc., and so we also have then in the Aegean Sea, between Greece and Turkey, uh, the Isle of Patmos. That's where the Apostle John was exiled, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And then there's Antioch in Syria. And uh, that's the Antioch of Acts 11 and 13, where Barnabas was and Paul was. Uh, they're just above Jerusalem, like the middle right, uh, the far middle, the middle far right of the map. And then... Uh, in Asia Minor, near Philadelphia, Sardis, we have Antioch in Pisidia, which is another Antioch. So there are two Antiochs, uh, but the one that we find Paul uh, leaving to go on his missionary journeys, the one where Barnabas went, where the church was planted in Acts 11, that's the Antioch in Syria. And so uh, there's lots of different places there. And of course, you can get a, probably get a better map online that has the various colors as well. Uh, but it gives you a bit of an idea of where everything is or where everything was. So this morning we'll, we'll turn the Word of God to 2 Timothy chapter 3 again. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay. 2 Timothy 3 and we'll read... Uh, from uh, the verse 11. We're breaking into what Paul is saying here. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading there. And then we'll turn just for a moment to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel chapter 5. And we'll read the verse 10 and the verse 11 and 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice 
and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Amen. And may the Lord bless again the reading of his word. Let us unite together in prayer and seek the Lord, please. Eternal God and Father in heaven, we rejoice today we can be found again in thy presence. We thank thee for this class in which we can come together to consider thy word and the history of thy church. And, O God, today we pray that thou would encourage our hearts, that thou would direct us again regarding the history of thy church, that we would be benefited in our souls, we would be encouraged spiritually, and that the example of these believers of old would be applied to our hearts, that we would desire whatever we may face to stand faithfully for thee, our God. Father, come and bless us today. Bless our time of worship and later on. Bless the children, the teachers, and the Sunday school. Father, may we know thy blessing today as we seek to glorify thee and minister to our hearts, we beseech thee for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Last week we commenced a study together considering the persecutions that the early church faced. Uh, there are around 10 separate periods of persecution under uh, the Roman Empire and the emperor himself. Of course, uh, there were persecutions locally in different cities and areas uh, before that and after that as well. Uh, not every Roman emperor persecuted the church of Christ either. And so some of these persecutions end and then there's a period of peace and then persecution starts again. But during that period of peace, there may have been again those local persecutions uh, around various cities within the empire. And, of course, the emperors uh, hated Christ. Uh, they hated what the gospel was about. They hated what Christians stood for. And many accusations were made against the church and against Christians, and they were blamed for all the problems and trials in society. An equivalent, maybe in our generation, uh, would be uh, Christians being blamed for the wildfires in BC or being blamed for uh, the pandemic or blamed for uh, some problems in regard to economics and then uh, being persecuted uh, for that. And so it happened uh, back many years ago uh, they were blamed, they were persecuted, but we're coming today to a number of different periods of persecution. And next week as well, we'll uh, consider the final section regarding these persecutions before uh, we move on. But notice then, uh, we have the persecution under Trajan. Trajan was the Roman emperor. He was born in AD 53 in what is known today as Spain. He, as an emperor, was greatly renowned and the empire itself reached its widest spread geographically under his reign. He reigned from 98 AD to 117. And the Roman Senate conferred the title of Optimus upon him. Uh, the word Optimus is one we don't really use today. I think uh, maybe in children's toys, etc., it has been used. Uh, but in general conversation, we don't use it. Uh, but it means best, the best, Optimus. And the Senate referred to this emperor as 
the best, the best. However, when his actions relating to the church of Christ are considered, he appears in a much lesser light. And the record of history states that the name Christian was hated by him, and he sought to make it an extinct religion. The church historian Philip Shaft has stated that Trajan, one of the best and most praiseworthy emperors, honored as the father of his country, but like his friends Tacitus and Pliny, wholly ignorant of the nature of Christianity, was the first to pronounce it in a form prescribed, to pronounce it in form a prescribed religion, as it had been all along in fact. He revived the rigid laws against all secret societies, and the provincial officers applied them to the Christians on account of their frequent meetings for worship. And his decision regulated the governmental treatment of the Christians for more than a century. And so his hatred was expelled upon the church, yet martyrdoms, imprisonments, and vicious persecution it could not stop the spread of Christ's church. And that is the power of the gospel and the power of our God. Though men were persecuted, though it was a danger to your life to come to Christ, and we can think of our own salvation. When we came to Christ and we bowed the knee and accepted him in faith and in repentance, we perhaps were blissfully unaware of the danger that we were in because we were in no danger. We have the freedom today to believe upon Christ and to live for him. To a certain extent at least, we're not being persecuted because we believe in him. But in those days, if you believed in Christ and converted to Christianity, immediately there was a danger. And your life was in danger. But God is on the throne. It is Tertullian who famously wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Another historian by the name Rennick stated that in little more than 70 years after the death of Christ, Christianity had made such rapid progress in some places as to threaten the downfall of paganism. The heathen temples were deserted, the worship of the gods was neglected, and the victims for sacrifice were rarely purchased. Those whose livelihoods depended on the worship of false gods were enraged, enraged and they in turn made many accusations against the Christians. And we can see that in Acts 16 where this young girl was converted to Christ and her masters then lost money uh, because she was no longer acting in the previous way that she was, as soon saying and doing all manner of things to earn them money. And they were angry and Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown in prison. And so many who supported the pagan worship, many whose livelihoods depended upon it, suffered because of a lack of income because men and women were turning to the Savior. But despite this severe persecution, the church, in the power of the Spirit, continued to grow and shine for Christ and his gospel. Christians were persecuted violently through various means. They were beheaded and burned. They faced wild beasts. They were cast into burning oil. Yet as S.M. Houghton states, yet their faith often sparkled like a precious stone as they faced their persecutors. What a great comment that is upon the faith of these believers who as they stood for Christ and as they faced persecution, their faith sparkled 
like a precious stone. Pliny the Younger was the governor of Bithynia. Uh, that place is found in modern-day Turkey, eastern Turkey. And he's known for several famous writings, including a letter consulting with the Emperor Trajan on how to deal with Christians. He acknowledges that the only crime that they appeared to be guilty of was simply gathering together to worship God. He understood that Christians sought to avoid such sins as adultery, theft, and lies, and therefore they desired to be good citizens within society. He later uh, wrote a letter regarding Christianity. His letter regarding Christianity is a valuable historic resource. And in this letter, he had three main questions. Should a distinction be made by the age of the Christian? So in other words, should we treat a teenager or a young child differently than an old man or a man in his middle years? Should the child face persecution? Should the older man be given a pass because he is old? Or should every Christian be treated the same? Does denying being a Christian mean the accused is pardoned? Is the name of Christian enough to condemn the accused? Or is it the crimes that have been committed as a Christian? So in other words, if you say, yes, I'm a Christian, can you be condemned because of that? Or do you need to have charges thrown at you for particular crimes? And the emperor responded. He said, do not seek out Christians for trial. And that sounds perhaps good. But then he says, if the accused are found guilty of being Christian, then they must be punished. And so if the question is made or the statement is given by the Christian, I am a believer, I love the Savior, I'm a Christian, then the emperor is saying that that is enough to, for them to be punished. If the accused deny being Christians and show proof, then they must be pardoned. And anonymous accusation should not be considered. And so there are a couple of things there that look good. Do not seek them out for trial. Anonymous accusations should not be considered. But if the accused are found guilty of just having that name, that is enough. They were not to be hunted down, but if accusations were brought against them and they were Christians, then if they were to be executed, that was the punishment for being a Christian. And in testing believers, Pliny ordered Christians to pray to the gods of the empire, the emperor himself, and to curse their savior. He wrote again to Trajan and said that I am informed that people who are really Christians cannot possibly be made to do any of these things. One historian wrote that he appeared to be puzzled by these anti-social characters who bind themselves together with an oath not to commit crimes, but to abstain from all such, and even from breaches of their own faith. He was also worried about the effects on the worship of the gods and even on social and economic matters. But in light of all this, those who were ready to withstand this persecution were powerful witnesses to Christ. They showed that there was this Christianity was not sterile. It was not dead and formal ritualism. They genuinely loved the Savior and belonged to him and could say with John, we love him because he first loved us. There's a man called Ignatius. He pastored the church at Antioch for 40 years. And he's known for writing seven letters to the churches. 
And that sounds similar because the Apostle John did that. But he wrote seven letters to the churches. He wrote one to Polycarp, who was the minister in Smyrna. And these letters were penned as he traveled to Rome to face persecution for being a Christian. The story is told how the emperor came to the city of Antioch and was told of Ignatius and demanded to meet with him. And the conversation is recorded. Trajan said, there you are, wicked devil and deceiver of men. And Ignatius replied and said, not an evil spirit, but I have Jesus in my heart. And Trajan said, Jesus Christ within you? Do you mean him who was crucified by Pontius Pilate? In other words, this man's a criminal. This man was put to death for crimes against the empire. And Ignatius said, yes, he was crucified for my sins. And Trajan immediately ordered that he be transferred to Rome, thrown to the wild beasts in the Colosseum for the entertainment of the crowds. Ignatius is recorded as saying, I thank thee, O Lord, that thou was granted thus to honor me. I am God's green to be ground between the teeth of wild beasts so that I may become a holy loaf for the Lord. Oh, he was willing to give his life for his Savior. And we see in these accounts the reality of faith and the seriousness by which these believers took their confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lesson for us to take our profession of Christ, our confession of him as our Lord and Savior, seriously. It's a serious matter, such as being saved from sin and being saved from hell. The subject of the gospel is a serious matter, something we must sort out before, between God and us. And therefore, anything to do with religion, anything to do with our faith, anything to do with the Savior should be a serious matter for us. And it was a serious matter to Ignatius. He was not going to reject or deny his Savior. He wrote many letters, as we've said, and they show that he knew that the scripture knew the scriptures and that he was concerned about false doctrines that were being spread in the church, particularly by two particular branches. And there was the Judaizers, and then we have those that gave an appearance of something that isn't real. That's what the Greek word there means, dokim. And these individuals, they taught that the incarnation was not true, that Christ was not real. He only seemed to be a man, and therefore his sufferings and resurrection were untrue. And Ignatius defended the faith against all of these groups and individuals. And he said that Christ did truly suffer. And indeed, just as he did truly and indeed raise himself again, his passion was no unreal illusion. He believed. And he defended that faith. He stressed the importance of unity within the church and urged Christians to obey their minister or bishop in all things. And this advice later led to the importance of the bishop in the churches. From it developed the influence of the hierarchy in both the Episcopalian uh, government of the church and in the Roman people government. And however, while there is an importance attached to hearing and obeying the preached word, and of course, obeying uh, the minister in as much as he obeys God and declares the word of God, 
Uh, we should also be discerning if we turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we have Paul here at Berea. What does he do? He preaches. What do the Bereans do? Well, we find that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They discerned. They didn't just believe everything that was said to them. They went to the Scriptures, and they made the decision. Is Paul preaching the truth? Is Paul preaching what the Word of God tells us? And they found that that was indeed the case. And of course, we should do that. We should do that. Whoever our minister may be, whoever the preacher is, uh, we should always uh, consider what the Word of God says. Men can make mistakes. Men can err. Men can say things in passing, and maybe a mistake has been made. And so we are to be discerning. We are to be discerning. And so we see something here that some of these men in the early church, they were good men, faithful men, but their views on certain things created a little bit of an influence. And as time moved by, these particular and specific influences affected the church, that doctrines began to change, the church itself began to change, and we find then the Roman Catholic Church with all of its false doctrine and teaching uh, coming to the focal point several hundred years from this point in history. And it didn't just happen overnight. S seeds of doctrine were sown, and like this here, obeying their minister or bishop in all things, and when we think of that, well, it is a good thing, as long as the minister is faithful to God's word. But what if he's not? What if he's not? And the danger then is we're to obey and listen in all things. And then we listen to false doctrine, we listen to heresy, and we listen to things that will affect us and influence us against the truth of the Word of God. And we can see that today. If we were to go into churches today and obey the minister or preacher in all things, we'd be hearing everything from a denial of the gospel of Christ to a prosperity gospel. And if we were to believe all these things, we would be believing a great variety of truths. We need to be discerning. We need to be discerning. But this idea... Uh, while we can understand where Ignatius is coming from, it later developed into the importance of the bishop, the importance of the pope, uh, the uh, infallibility then that he had in regard to declaring so-called truth. But we are to be discerning. Throughout Trajan's reign, professing Christ was a capital offense. And in spite of all opposition and persecution, Again, Christianity flourished. And we see the power of the gospel there. We see the power of the spirit. We see that in persecution, men and women uh, were not, as it were, believing and coming to Christ without a second thought or coming lightly. Persecution keeps the church pure. Those who came in and believed were those who were truly saved because of the great cost that could be paid for trusting Christ. 
The successors of Trajan were Hadrian and Antonius Pius. And during their reigns, there was relative peace toward Christianity. But during the reign of Antonius Pius, a local persecution of Christians at Smyrna broke out. And the account is told of a man called Quintus, who had originally exhorted others to face martyrdom. He himself lost heart at the sight of the beasts and was persuaded to offer incense to the emperor. And so uh, there were those that did lose faith and did give in to the demands, but countless others held fast to their faith. Polycarp, we've mentioned him before. He was the minister in Smyrna. He, it is believed that he had known the apostle John. He was a man of peace. He was gracious, but he was firm against heresy and false doctrine. He warned the churches about the heretic Marcion, and when Polycarp was urged to acknowledge him as a church leader, he responded by calling him the firstborn of Satan. And some of these doctrines and sects and heretics we'll, uh, we'll consider on another occasion uh, some of what they believed. But in the year 155, Polycarp, who was now an aged man, found refuge outside Smyrna due to the persecution. He was betrayed and handed over to his enemies. He was calm and submissive to the will of God. It is said he gave food to his persecutors and prayed for them, himself, and the church. We could perhaps imagine the scene. His persecutors come upon him to arrest him, to take him, to kill him. And he says, I don't know, something like, well, before we leave, would you like some food? We'll sit down and have a meal. And he prayed for them. He was a man of grace. Man of grace. He was ordered to venerate the emperor as divine. He was threatened with the beasts. And he said, send for them. And his enemies responded, if you despise the beasts, I will send you to the fire. Swear and I will release you. But he said, you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour. And in a little while it is put out. But you know nothing of the fire of judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Now, while you are waiting, bring what you will and do with me what, as you have planned. He was also urged to curse his Savior. And he said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. He was burned alive by the enemies of Christ. There was a slave girl in southern France, Bundina, she and her mistress were Christians. It's recorded that she had courage and resisted denying the Savior. When torture failed, she was thrown to the beasts, but she survived the first attack. Steadfastly, she maintained her profession of faith and denied that Christians practiced evil customs. She strengthened others by her courage, including a 15-year-old boy who died under torture while refusing to deny Christ. And then after that, she died the next day, being killed by a wild Ball. And so there was no peace or no mercy to young girls, to young boys in regard to persecution. Then we have the persecution under Marcus Aurelius Antonius. He reigned from 161 to 180, and the historian Philip Schaff described his reign. He said, Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher on the throne, was a well-educated, just, kind, and amiable emperor and reached the old Roman ideal of self-reliant stoic virtue. But for this very reason, he had no sympathy with Christianity and probably regarded it as an absurd and fanatical superstition. 
He had no room for the purest and most innocent of his subjects, many of whom served in his own army. He was influenced, just paraphrasing some of this, with some of the philosophers, oh sorry, some of the men on behalf of persecuted Christians, but he turned a deaf ear. And only once does he allude to them and with scorn, with scorn. Again, another individual, a man who hated Christians. The gospel had spread throughout much of the then-known world at this point and throughout the main population centers of the Roman Empire. The greatness of his message meant that it had broken through all social barriers and many of the rich who were converted distributed their substance to the poor. Many more traveled with the gospel message to new regions and the emperor saw with his evil eye the superior power of Christianity over the state religion and he became an intolerant persecutor. It's already recorded methods of torture and we find that he used more methods of torture. Martyrs already badly wounded were made to walk over thorns and nails and broken glass and after suffering the most excruciating tortures were put to death by the most terrible methods. Many church leaders were brutally treated and martyred for the faith including Justin who earned the nickname Martyr, Justin Martyr. He was converted to Christ at the age of 30 after seeking for the truth. He was an earnest believer. He wrote books defending the faith, but he died in Rome around 165 AD. A very well-known man in the early church period. And then we have the persecution under Severus. And the Roman Empire, or the Roman Emperor Severus was born in 145. He reigned from 192 to 211. He was of Punic descent, had a Syrian wife. It was said that he was not fully, and that should be fully Roman in his spirit, and was less concerned to maintain the old state religion. Yet, uh, there was no lack of the local persecution of Christians. Uh, Clement of Alexandria wrote that many martyrs are daily burned, confined, or beheaded before our eyes. In 202 AD, he was turned, some say, by uh, the excesses of the Montanists, and again we'll come and consider uh, them at a later point and what they believed. But he enacted a rigid law against the further spread of Christianity and of Judaism. And that led to violent persecution in Egypt, in North Africa, and produced what has been referred to as some of the first flowers of martyrdom. Philip Schaff says that the father of Hardigan was beheaded as a result of this in Alexandria and Carthage. Uh, there were uh, young uh, disciples, young men and women learning the truth, uh, probably Montanists, and they showed remarkable steadfastness and fidelity in the dungeon and in the place of execution. Perpetua, a young woman of noble birth, uh, resisting not without a violent struggle, both the entreaties of her aged father and the appeal of her helpless babe upon her breast, sacrificed the deep and tender feelings of a daughter and a mother to the Lord who died for her. She died. Felicitas, a slave, and when delivered of a child in the same judgment dungeon, as answered the jailer who reminded her of the still keener pains of martyrdom. Now I suffer what I suffer, but then another will suffer for me because I shall suffer for him. All remained firm and they were cast to wild beasts at the next public festival. 
Tertullian lived during this time. He was a lawyer born in Carthage. He professed faith in Christ. He was one of the most Christian writers of his day. He attacked paganism, and while he did abandon Orthodox Christianity for Montanism, it should be remembered that over this period of history, uh, as we've said, that many of those who were leaders in the church were responsible for introducing teachings that later led to the church to depart from the simplicity of the New Testament as the Roman Catholic Church eventually rose to power. But in his defense of Christians at that time, he remained strong. And he said, if the Tiber, so river in Rome, rises to the walls, if the Nile in Egypt fails to flood the fields, if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake or a famine or a plague, straightway the cry goes up, the Christians to the lions. Such was the attitude. Then we have Maximus Thrax. He reigned around, he was born around 173. He reigned from 235 to 238. Some of these emperors had a very short reign. Uh, we've come out of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, and uh, she reigned for a considerably long time 70 years or so. Uh, but some of these men reigned for three years, maybe reigned for less than that. Uh, they certainly didn't reign for uh, 70 years. And we think not only of, I suppose, health and hygiene in those days, but we also think of the political aspects and uh, the issues that were taking place and men who were power-hungry. But after the death of Severus, again, there was a period of peace. During the reign of Maximus Thrax, persecution broke out again in particular areas. He put to death all the friends of his predecessor, he ordered church leaders to be put to death, and his vengeance fell upon all classes, but especially the clergy and those who were the pastors and the preachers. And it was not only because of their Christianity that they suffered on this occasion, but because of positions of influence that they had reached in the empire. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that during this period of persecution, numberless Christians were put to death without trial and burned indiscriminately in heaps without the least decency. After his death, then, the church was free from persecution for about the space of a decade. And so we have uh, several persecutions. I've lost count of uh, how many we have considered, uh, but I think we maybe have around four or so to consider next week. Uh, but when we think of what, was, what the church suffered and what individuals suffered... Again, we've said this before regarding persecution. No doubt we'll say it again. But we've never faced anything like this ourselves. We know nothing of how these individuals suffered. And if we did, we wouldn't be here uh, because they were put to death. They gave their lives and they so loved the Savior who died for them. They so loved uh, the one who shed his blood for them. They so loved the Redeemer who died upon the cross for them. They were not ashamed, as Paul said, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. They gave their lives for Christ. They had no doubt in doing so because they loved him, because he first loved them. Such was their love, such was the strength and the reality of their faith that they gave themselves. And as we move through church history, we'll see this. We'll see this next week. We'll see this when we come eventually to the Reformation. Men and women 
young people, young girls who gave their lives. We see it in Scotland uh, during the period of the Covenanters, the 1600s. Uh, young girls who, who died because of their faith in Christ, because they loved the Savior. We know nothing of that threat. While there are those in this world uh, who do face that threat, we here in Western society know very little. But what of our love for Christ? Are we challenged by thinking of these individuals, Polycarp, Ignatius, Perpetua, others, who so loved Christ they died for him? They gave their lives instead of denying him. May it challenge our love for the Savior. And may these things be used to stir up by the grace of God more love within our hearts for the Savior. Do we love God the way that we ought to? Do we love the Savior the way that we ought to? Do we love the Savior perfectly? The answer to that is no, we, we don't. We're sinners saved by grace. Our love toward Christ is not a perfect love like his love toward us. But as we grow in grace and we grow in the knowledge of the Lord and we're sanctified, that love should be growing. And dear believer, that love within our hearts should be growing. And we see the love for Christ in these martyrs. Was it a perfect love? They were sinners saved by grace. It wasn't a perfect love, but it was a love that was deep and strong that they gave their lives for the cause of Christ and for their faith. May we, as we consider these things, be challenged to love Christ more. And if we have been looking at things in this world or setting our affections upon other things, may we look at the reality of life and be reminded of the reality of life that Christ is our Savior who died for us. And these martyrs, the only real thing they had in this world was their love of Christ and was his salvation. And let us look, while God may have blessed in other things and blessed materially, let us focus upon him who died for us. Let us love him the great love, a great seal, placing all of our affection upon him. May he be, as the scripture would teach, preeminent, preeminent in our lives for his glory. Let us pray. Our eternal God and Father in heaven, we thank you for thy word today. We realize that much of what we said is solemn. We think of the death of men who committed no crime, of women who committed no crime, of young boys and young girls who committed no crime except that they would not deny their Savior and how they suffered. And Father, we pray today that we would remember, remember those who gave their lives for the cause of Christ. Where would Christianity be today? Where would the church be today if we ignored and forgot about this sacrifice? These martyrs themselves had denied the faith. Father, we thank thee that we can look back upon a history that is rich, a history stained with blood, a history that testifies of a great faith with a great faith for thee. We pray that would bless us and do our souls good and encourage us. And as we come to the place of worship, Father, meet with our souls, we pray. Minister to us and glorify thy name, we ask for Christ's sake.